early Christians set aside to worship the Lord in appreciation for the risen Savior. We worship on Sundays because it was on the first day of the week that Jesus got up. It was the first day of the week that everything changed. It was the first day of the week where we had no hope. Now our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. This is why we gather. We gather to celebrate our Savior, Jesus Christ, where Monday through Saturday we worship scattered. On Sunday morning we worship gathered. That is why we are here. As we prepare to dig into God's Word, why don't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are certainly worthy. May our heart's response right now be simply hallelujah. May you receive our highest praise. Father, as we have come to worship collectively, may we not give you a leftover praise. May we not give you a less than praise. But Father, may we praise you with our whole heart, with our whole mind, with our whole soul. Father, as we gather, may you please pour out your spirit upon us in new and fresh ways that we would truly hear you. Dad, there's so many distractions every day. Many of us are distracted right now. Father, I ask that you would arrest our attentions and our affections, that you will overwhelm us and consume us. Give us that joy, that unspeakable joy that comes from knowing you and the pardon of our sins. So right now, oh God, I ask that you would come and open up our eyes and open up our ears, that this Sunday would not be just ordinary, but Father, may revival break loose in this place. May reconciliation break loose in this place. Father, give us a new heart, a new mind, that we may truly worship you in spirit and in truth. May we no longer be the center, center of our circumstance, but may you sit on the center of the throne of our hearts right now. Father, help us to die to ourselves that Christ Jesus may live. And Father, as I go before your people to preach your holy and righteous word, Father, I ask that you would have mercy upon me. As I call your people to forsake sin, Lord, help me to forsake my sin. Please forgive me of all sin and unrighteousness. And right now, oh Lord, I ask that you would create within me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Hide me behind your cross. Use my foolish and weak words to make much of Jesus Christ. And may we leave this place understanding more of your desire for our lives, how we should live, and the motivation to do it because of the grace we have received through Christ. Heavenly Father, I love you. We love you. 
We thank you for the privilege. In the precious name of Jesus the Christ, we do pray. Amen. Amen. Indeed, it's good to be with you. I was telling the deacons and the, the young men in the back as we prayed. Like this whole week, I felt like I, just, I was just off. I was off the whole week. I was like, Lord, what is going on? What is, what is wrong? Why do I feel like this? And, uh, but as Sunday morning came closer and closer, as I was in sermon prep, uh, the Lord began to give me a joy. And I, I really think I just, I just missed force last week. And it's good to be back. It's good to be home. Uh, every, every Sunday morning when I'm, when I'm not here, it's always just weird feeling like, man, I'm supposed to be preaching. Like, what's, what's going on? But it's good to be with you once again. Um, and I welcome each and every one of you, all of our guests, to this church gathered at Forest Baptist. It is not the building that is the church, but it is the collection of God's people that, that represent the local body of Christ here. So as I said before, during the week we, we scatter, but on Sunday mornings we gather to lift up the holy and righteous name of Jesus the Christ, and also to, to be an encouragement to one another. I don't know about you, but sometimes you just need encouragement from your brothers and sisters in Christ. Because you know they ain't going to encourage you on a job. They ain't going to say nothing nice at school. Sometimes it's just nice to walk in a place and to feel like somebody wants you around. I pray that you feel like that this morning. So welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, I reached out this week to Pastor Scott Long, and I just thanked him for doing such a wonderful job. It's good to be able to call on people to step in and to preach a mighty word. Uh, when I was working with him, and I, I told him, I said, you can preach whatever you want to preach. And he said, you, he said, well, where are you preaching right now? I said, I, I'm in Matthew. He said, I would love just to pick up where you left off. I said, let's talk about it. I walked him through what we've been talking about. He just kept it going. So we're going to keep on in the, in the gospel of Matthew this morning. As I said last week, Pastor Scott, he covered the first of six deeper looks that Jesus gives as he looks into how the law works itself out rightly in our lives. There is a religious standard of righteousness, but then there is God's standard of righteousness. And Jesus, he, he begins preaching this sermon, and he, begins, he began teaching on Christian virtue. In verses 1 through 12, he moved on to Christian impact in verses 13 through 16. And then now Jesus, he's, he's teaching his disciples Christian standards for life here and throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And remember, Jesus, he's, he's contrasting the differences between false righteousness and true righteousness. Verse 20 serves as the, the thesis, the central theme for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the uh, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of those religious folks. But it's not because the religious folks' righteousness was so high, it was because they actually took God's standard of righteousness and lowered it in order that they may meet it. So Jesus is really just saying, do what I originally told you to do, and your righteousness will exceed that of the Pharisees and scribes. What we need to understand is the Christian standard 
for living is not horizontal. May we, may we not look explicit, explicitly to our left and to the right to figure out what is righteous, but may we look vertically. May we look up to the throne of God to see what thus says the Lord on a particular topic or situation to understand how we as God's people should respond in that situation. So this morning we'll be looking at the second of Jesus' examples of, 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 of true righteousness versus false righteousness. If you will, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, the fifth chapter. and We'll be looking at verses 27 through 30. Verses 27 through 30. And if you are able, please stand in honor of the reading of God's word. This is the word of God. Please hear the voice of Christ. And Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, You have heard that it was said, you should not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who is a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown, go into hell. May the Lord have a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Piggybacking on last week's title, this morning I like to tag this text, Breaking Free from Sin. Breaking Free from Sin. You know, it's interesting living in America because we have quite a few different loves, and one love that that I noticed that we have, we love our pets. We love our pets here in America. According to one number, Americans spent 72 billion, not, not, not million, but billion on their pets in, in 2018 alone. 72 billion dollars. Now, don't get me wrong, there's, there's nothing wrong with Having pets and liking animals, I mean, if we could have pets at our house, I, I would love to have a pet. I would love to have a dog. We can't have a goldfish at our house. We can't. There's no pets allowed in our house. But I remember growing up in a friend of mine, he, he came by and, and he began to show me his brand, he had a brand new pet and he was so excited. And what he began to show me was his brand new Burmese python, a snake, yes. He had a pet snake. And, and it, it was, it was cute, it was small. And, and some of y'all thinking a snake, like, what, a pet? Y'all would have been running the other way. But I'm, I'm weird like that, so I picked it up and I'm playing with it. You know how you put it around your neck. And I'm like, man, this, 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 is, this is sweet. You're like, Nah. <laughs> It was cute. It was like slithering, like you know. But I remember uh, a few months later, I saw my friend. I asked. I said, "I said, what happened to your snake?" I was interested about it, just trying to figure out what uh, the fun he was having with it. And he tells me, he said, "Oh man, you know what? 
I lost it somewhere in the house. <laughs> I said, you lost the whole snake? And they said, hey, get out the cage. I'm like, I don't know where it's at. So come to find out a few months later, they actually found it in the basement, like up under uh, the HVAC system. By that time, it had an eight, and it, it, it was dying. But, but when I think back, no, really, what would he have done if he had not lost the snake? And, it, and, it, began to, and it, it became two to three years old. And at that point, a Burmese python could be as long as 10 to 15 feet long. Like, what, really, what would he have he had done with a 15-foot snake in his house? He probably would have been like a lot of people just kind of figured out a way to get rid of it and, and go on to the next thing. So, so a lot of that had been happening in Florida. And in a place called the Everglades, it, it is being inundated and ran over by Burmese pythons. There's estimated are hundreds of thousands of pythons out in the wild, in the Everglades, and, 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 and these pythons have become an invasive species. They're, they're wrecking the ecosystem. They're killing all the, all the possums and all the raccoons. The bird. You can't find the, the normal native animals in the Everglades because the pythons have taken over. They, they multiply so quickly. A female can lay 100 eggs a year. So, so it's exponential, and as they are overrunning the Everglades, they, they are becoming the, the primary predator. There's no, nothing else can take it down. It, it has even been seen where a, a large Burmese python is taking out alligators. These things are ridiculous. It's, it is incredible the lengths that they are going to to try to uh, bring this into control somehow. And when I think about just how invasive these species are, there are many people who are going out and trying to capture and, and trying to fight them. But if you and I were to encounter one of these alone in the wild, you would literally be in the fight of your life. But you know what? In many ways, the way my friend treated his pet, his pet snake, we similarly treat our sin. When we first dibble and dabble in sin, it's cute. It's cuddly. It's something that's kind of fun and exciting. But then you know what we do? We begin to feed that sin. And that sin begins to grow. And it begins to get long. And it begins to get stronger. And it begins to get stronger. Then all of the sudden, sudden something we thought was so small has overrun our lives and become an invasive species wreaking havoc to our own ecosystems. Sin starts small, but sin is so greedy, it consumes what is ever in its path. When we are dealing with sin, just like these reptiles, sin will strangle us and consume us if we don't do something about it. When it comes to dealing with sin, we are in the fight of our lives. This is the warning we receive in Jesus' rebuke of the religious leaders of this day because they have been dumbing down God's standard of righteousness. 
By lowering God's standard for right living, what they had actually done, they were allowing sin and sinfulness to further spread throughout the culture. Outward piety is not an answer for sin. You can look good on the outside, and you may look good to me on the outside, but God really knows what's going on on the inside. Jesus, in this text, he wants you to pursue inward purity by knowing the righteous eliminate sin's harmful root to escape sin's eternal fruit. The righteous eliminate sin's harmful root to escape sin's eternal fruit. Beloved, to be a Christian means to intentionally be killing sin in your life. As a Christian, we can never settle or be satisfied with any conduct, thought, behavior, or practice that is uh, contrary to the will of God. We can come up with all the excuses in the world. They made me do it. It was convenient. We share finances. Anything that we can come up with is not an excuse to be pursuing God's standard. Sin will eat you up in the long run. In the famous words of the Puritan John Owens, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. This text is about God's standard of righteousness being our standard of righteousness. So this whole text here on in, in the Sermon on the Mount is all about Christian standard for living. And the Christian standard for living is God's standard of righteousness. What I want us to really look at in this text is just two things specifically in the text this morning. First, I want us to see that the righteous do not minimize their sin. The righteous do not minimize sin. But, and secondly, the righteous deal decisively with sin. The righteous deal decisively with sin. So our first points come from verses 27 and 28. The righteous do not minimize their sin. This is where Jesus says, you have heard that, that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks upon a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Here, Jesus, he's quoting the seventh commandment uh, that can be found in Exodus, the 20th chapter, and again in Deuteronomy, the fifth chapter. This command, it, it it, it prohibits sexual relations by a married person with a partner other than his or her spouse. God is prohibiting breaking the covenant bond between a man and a woman. This, this should be a, a simple expectation. It should, be, it should be understood in the uh, husband and wife uh, but marriage, in that covenant, there should not be anyone outside of that covenant fulfilling the desires and the needs of the husband and the wife. But yet, God in his infinite wisdom, knowing our hearts, he gave us this commandment up front. He didn't sugarcoat it. He didn't try to uh, slip it in. He just, in the Ten Commandments, thou shall not commit adultery. And he lays it out there because he knows the sinfulness of our hearts. Matter of fact, the Proverbs pick up this same theme specifically in chapters 5, 6, and 7 as, as Solomon, uh, he, he's giving wisdom 
as his wisdom comes forward in Proverbs 5, 6, and 7, it deals specifically with the, uh, the, adult, uh, the adulterer or the adulterous woman. As a matter of fact, in Proverbs 6, 32, the text says, he who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. So what's the problem? If, if that is what the Bible says, if that is what God gave Moses as the Ten Commandments, and, and, and if we see that reinforced in the Proverbs, then why would Jesus ever feel it necessary to, to expound or expand upon that simple precept? It should be simple enough, right? Well, again, the problem was that the religious leaders of the day, they, they, they committed to following the letter of the law instead of following the spirit of the law. And when you follow the letter of the law, you are, uh, you are automatically looking for your get out clause. When you look at the specific words of a law, the specific words of a contract, you're coming to it, looking at it in that much detail because you already have in your mind, I'm trying to figure out a way to do what I really want to do. I want to find a way to get out of this contract. And, and the religious leaders had, had almost come to a point where they, they, they disobeyed God's desire for holiness and was only looking at specific pieces of the law in order to say, yeah, I did it. I'm good enough. You should be like me. And they were stealing God's glory from the people trying to make much of themselves. The Pharisees, they had a, a minimalistic, a, a, a simplistic or narrow view of sexual sin. They would go as far as uh, they, would, they were reducing sin to merely the physical act. You know, you, you know how we, we act around the house and, and something's taking place and, and your, your kids may be fighting, arguing, you may have grown up this way, and, and you say, yeah, I'll stop fighting. And you're like, I ain't touch her. But y'all been throwing pillows, throwing, throwing pies, y'all been doing everything else, but, but you're trying to get to the letter of the law, not the spirit of the law. And the Pharisees were, they were trying to get to the, the letter of the law by only saying, just don't commit this act and you will not be in sin. They reduce God's standard of righteousness by limiting this area of, of sexual immorality just to marriage. So they would narrow God's law by saying, okay, well, was he married? Was she married? And began to go into the details of what it would take to only commit adultery, leaving out all of the other areas of sin. The Pharisees not only would, would lower God's standard, but they would just look over the 10th commandment. What is the 10th commandment? You shall not what? You shall not what? It's covet. It, the last one is covet. Thou shall not covet what? Thy neighbor's wife, male servant, his house. So, so automatically, when, when someone falls into adultery, it's not like you're just breaking one of God's laws, one of God's standards for righteousness. When you fall into sin, you're guilty of so much more than just that one sin. This is where James says, when you fall into sin, uh, you break one sin, you've, you've broken the whole law. They were looking past coveting because why? Coveting is an internal trait. They was only worried about what's out, what was outside. They were only worried about how everybody else in church saw them. They was only worried about what I wonder so-and-so down the aisle will think about me. 
they was only worried about presenting themselves as Christians where in, in, their, in their heart of hearts, they were really idolaters loving on themselves. And not only that, the Pharisees would make provisions for men to get out of their marriages for trivial and small things. We'll look at this some more when we talk about the subject of divorce, but they, they would actually allow a man to divorce his wife if she burnt up dinner. Well, like what? I'm, I'm giving me a new wife. Dinner wasn't good. And, and they were allowing men to come up with any excuse not to be committed to their covenant union with their wives. These Pharisees, they were lowering God's standards of covenant fidelity and loyalty. And, and as we saw earlier, they were doing and teaching others to do the same. This is why Jesus says those who lower the commandments and teach others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Beloved, be, be careful of your sin and who you are teaching how to sin. Beloved, if, if you are a parent, it should be scary of the sin that we teach our children. Because not only are we, are, we, are we living in a sinful way in front of our children, if we have not submitted our entire life to Jesus Christ, but not only are we in sin, we begin to show others how to sin. We teach others how to talk. You wonder why, how, why them kids know those words? You're like, like where that come from? Well, mama, daddy, I heard you saying that. I mean, they won't say that to you, but, but that's where it comes from. Be careful, those who relax the commandments and teach others to do the same. The Pharisees were, were setting a precedent, a standard that, that, that's, that would allow sin to permeate in the midst of that culture. And Jesus comes and he says, you got it twisted. You are living according to your own desires, trying to satisfy your own standards. But the law is pointing you not back to your standards, but to God's standards, to the holy and perfect standards. And Jesus comes on the scene and he flips the script and he says, not only does some, uh, you should not commit adultery, but not, it, 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 when you begin to look at a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery with her in, in your heart. Jesus wants his disciples to see, and he wants us to see that sin is not just a matter of deeds, but it's also a matter of desires. Sin is a matter of the heart. Sin comes from the inside out, not, not so much from the outside in. And Jesus is pointing to, the, uh, to, to where our sinful habits really begin. Where does sin really begin? I was... Born in iniquity and shaped in sin. Turn with me to James, the first chapter. James, the first chapter, verses 13 through 15. James, he, he's expounding on this, this notion of uh, an idea of where exactly does sin come from. And he says in verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now watch this. But each person 
is tempted when he is, she is, lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So you see this, this pattern, this escalation, this, this progress of sin in a person's heart. Sin starts with a thought. Sin starts with a desire. It, a sin starts with, with you saying, I deserve. Sin starts by saying, I want, not what does God want. And, and, and once we have that desire, then we begin to, to scheme and to figure out, well, how can I do this in a way that won't nobody else find out? And then that temptation it, it, it gives birth to sin, and then we find ourselves in that sin, and then we find ourselves in a situation where we, we had no intention of being there. Sin will take you to that place where you find yourself saying, how did I get here? How did I get here? The progression of sin was at work in your life. So Jesus, he is pointing to this progression of sin, and he's saying, you, you, you don't just stop sin after it has manifested itself. You have to get to the root of the sin. So particularly here, Jesus is talking about that lustful look. You know, that, that lustful look. This lustful look that Jesus is talking about is a covetous look. It's that look that says, oh, I want that. I wish I had that. I wish I had him. I wish I had her. I wish I had them. And, and regardless, watch this, of your marital status, we all have that lustful look. It might not be for a person. It might be for that new car. We got that lustful look. It might not be for a new car. It might be for that new house. It might not be for a new house. It may be for that new job. It may be for that new title. It may be for that new degree. It may, it may be something else, but we all have that lustful look where we're saying, I want that. See, this is that same lustful look that King David had when he was looking at Bathsheba. You remember David. He was, he was chilling at the crib when he's supposed to be at war, and he's, he's walking out in his mansion. He already has everything the heart can desire, and he looks out over the roofs, and he's scanning and, and looking like, look, look, look at how great I am. I, I, I own all of this, and he sees a beautiful woman taking a bath. And upon the glance, the glance kind of stops. You know the glance where you're glancing and then all of a sudden your body stops but your eyes lock. And he locks in on Bathsheba and, and that lustful look becomes covetous. Why do I say that? It becomes covetous because David displayed that he actually had the power to go get what he wants. And as king he says, go get her. He ends up having an affair with her and a, a child is conceived. But because of his sin, the child dies. And, and, and a whole series of events begin to cascade in David's life because of one lustful look. Beloved, where are your eyes focused? What have you been looking at that is drawing you away from what you're supposed to be doing? See, because here's the thing. Adultery doesn't just happen. Adultery begins with emotional affairs. 
You know, somebody all of a sudden gives you a compliment. Your husband, your wife, they ain't been paying attention to you because y'all been married a couple years now and, 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 and they think everything is good and all of a sudden you start getting attention. And you begin to have conversations. You begin to sit for coffee. And you begin to, to meet somewhere that no one knows. See, adultery doesn't just happen. It starts somewhere. And, and you get into these emotional affairs. You may not be cheating on your husband. You may not be cheating on your wife. But emotionally, somebody else has you. Adultery doesn't just happen. It begins with work husbands and work wives. I remember the first time I heard that term. You ever heard that term? That's my work husband. That's my work wife. I'm like, what? And so, so on the job, a work husband, a work wife, it's not, it's not someone you're married to, but somebody you're always close with at work. Like when you leave the house, you, you go to lunch with this person. You're always laughing with this person. You're always having fun with this person. And then you go home to your discouraging life. But you look forward to go back to work to be with your work husband and your work wife. Beloved, the only reason your work husband and work wife don't get on your nerves is only because you see them at work. You don't get to see their morning mess. That's why it's so intriguing. Sin doesn't just happen. It starts with our internal desires. It starts when we get an idea. We sit there and we get that light bulb that pop over our head and, oh, I'm going to do this. The question then, if we look at Jesus' words, is what areas of your life have you narrowed God's standard of righteousness? That's the issue. See, the righteous do not minimize sin. What areas of your life are you minimizing sin? You know it's there. You know it's an issue. But you're saying it's not that bad. Everybody else is doing this, and I'm just doing this. What, what lies are, 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 you, uh, are you feeding yourself? What lies are you allowing Satan to speak over your life in order for you just to leave that sin where it is so that it can grow and fester? Jesus is saying the righteous do not minimize their sin. But if we don't minimize our sin, then what do we do with sin? Jesus says we, we, we decisively deal with our sin. This is what he's talking about in verses 29 and 30. He says to 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better to lose one of your members than that your whole body going to hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better to lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Jesus is saying we cannot hesitate when it comes to dealing with sin. We cannot hesitate when dealing with sin in our lives. Disciples of Jesus remove the sources of temptation and sin from their lives. Jesus, he, he, uses his, he uses this figurative language to help us understand just how dangerous, just how heinous sin really is. Jesus is saying that if your, if your right eye is causing you to sin, to, to, to gouge that boy out and to throw it away. Jesus is saying that if your right hand is, is causing you to cut it off, 
He's speaking in hyperbole, but what he's trying to get you to understand is how dangerous sin is. He is trying to help you understand that sin left unchecked will destroy you. It's guaranteed. It will take you out. And and it's kind of sweet how Jesus does this because what he's actually saying is no matter how much you love the object, no matter how precious the object is, if it is causing you sin, you got to get rid of it. How do we know this? He says, your right eye and your right hand. In that culture, the left hand was looked, the left side was looked at as less than. So you wouldn't do important things with your left hand. You always did important things with your right hand. So for him to say the right eye, he's saying, not only is it your eye, it's your favorite eye. You know, you get a little bit older, you got a favorite eye. Both of them used to be good, but now you got a favorite eye. He says, you, your favorite eye. Not only is it your hand, but it's your favorite hand. So Jesus is, is, is calling us to radical sacrifice. He's, he's saying, don't get rid of those little things that you know won't bother you. He says, get rid of those things that even if you consider them precious, you need to get rid of them. No matter what they're worth, you know how we do, but I pay so much for it. No matter how much you pay for it, but it's been in my family so long, no matter how long it's been in your family, Jesus is is calling for, for complete allegiance to his standard. He's trying to Wake us up. He's trying to, Jesus is trying to shake us up out of our human fall. You know, I, I walk around and, and it, it, it's like we're walking in a fog and we don't realize how far we really are from God. And we don't realize how heinous our sin is. And we forget the fact that it took God himself to come down 42 and a half generations, to live the life that you could not live, to die the death that you deserve, to, to be crucified on the cross, buried in a borrowed man's tomb, and through, with the, the Holy Spirit supernaturally intending his body to get up from the dead in order for us to have forgiveness of sin. And we walk around acting like sin ain't that big. It, it, it's okay. And, and, and like if I ignore it, it'll just go away. And we walk in this fog sinning against our brothers and sinning against our sisters and sinning against ourselves and sinning against God and we act like there is no consequences and we walk around this fall like it's okay I'm gonna be okay there's no such thing as hell that's coming the wrath of God is not coming Jesus is trying to shake us but we've we've read this text so many times that, of course, Jesus doesn't mean tear out your eye. Of course, Jesus doesn't mean cut off your hand. And he doesn't, but that doesn't diminish how serious we should be when it comes to sin. Sin is like that boulder that trapped that hiker last year. This, this guy, he was going on a hike all by himself. 
somewhere he had been before, and he was trying to climb some rocks, and, and all of a sudden, and, and he's trying to go up the, the entire face. This boulder just fell on him, and it fell on his arm, and he was stuck. Nobody around. You know how folks do. They go out in the middle of nowhere with no phone and nobody to go with them. Like, what's wrong with you? Uh, I mean, like, but, but he's there. I mean, that's, 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 a, met- that's a, a metaphor right there. We walk, we walk in life all by ourselves. We ain't got no Christian friends. We fall into sin and wonder what happened. So he's laying there, and he's pinned because the boulder is on his arm. I mean, it's, it crushed his arm. But he knew that if he stayed there, he would die. In his pocket was one of them little bitty pocket knives. And he decided that his life was more important than his arm. And he methodically, slowly, over time, dealt with the pain and cut off his own right arm. I mean, think about that for a moment. Not only did he have to cut himself, not only did he have to cut through the muscle, not only did he have to cut the tendon, he had to figure out a way to break the bone. But he said his life was more valuable than his arm. So I'm trying to get you to understand something. In his mind, y'all, y'all saying, well, I would have just been dead. They just had to keep, get me. <laughs> his life was more valuable than his arm. So he cut it off so he could survive. Like the hiker, we must free ourselves from sin by any means necessary. We're going to have to give up some stuff. We're going to have to lay some stuff down if we're going to be serious with God and his standards. When I was working through this subject, though, that because Jesus is dealing with sexual sin, there, there was a, a particular perspective that the Lord just, he, he, brought, he brought to my mind that we just got to deal with. And I, I want to be sensitive, and, and some of you may feel uncomfortable, but dealing with Jesus' words on fighting lust and fighting sin, we have to go there. An area that we must talk about uh, because of its pervasiveness in our culture is that of pornography. Pornography has become a normal part of our culture. Graphic images of sex. Pornographic images have moved out of seedy theaters, out of, out of, out of darkened basements, and they, it shows up in our favorite TV shows, and it shows up on our cell phones. So the question pretty much now has become, instead of, if you've seen pornographic material, it's when's the last time you've seen pornographic material because it's so pervasive. Billions of dollars are spent on pornography itself. Satan has laid a perfect trap to distract, to damage, to debilitate, 
to discredit and to destroy. What are we going to do? Are we going to lay up under the boulder with our arm? Or are we going to save our lives? See, what Jesus is talking about in this text is what can be called the mortification of sin. The killing of sin in our lives. Turn with me to two two texts of Scripture. Romans, the 13th chapter. Romans, the 13th chapter, and the 14th verse. And Paul says here, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And what? Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So the way that we kill sin is we need to stop feeding sin. Stop setting yourself up for failure. You know if certain numbers show up on your caller ID, you just feel like you need to answer it. Maybe you need to change your number. You know certain stores in the mall you can't walk past without going in. Then maybe you need to shop at Dollar General instead. But if you got to kill it, you got to kill it. And he says, make no provisions for the... Give no opportunities for you to be satisfied by that sin. In Colossians, the third chapter, we get another example. Colossians 3 and 5. says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Jesus is telling us that we have to kill sin. We can't play with sin. We have to kill sin. So the other question we must ask ourselves, are you willing to take radical steps to kill the sin that is in your life? Are you willing to give up your phone? Are you willing to give up television? Are you willing to give up the internet? Are you really willing to give up that relationship? Are you willing to give up that job? And we can go on and on. Whatever your struggle is, are you willing to kill it in order that you may live freely? Now, now your struggle It's not my struggle, and my struggle is not your struggle. But where we do struggle, we have to kill sin and make no provision for the flesh. And when we kill sin, we have to kill it at the root. Sin is like those weeds that pop up in your yard. Like you got those weeds in your yard, you go over it with your lawnmower, and after you finish with your lawnmower, it looks good, doesn't it? You put the lawnmower up, you go to sleep, you wake up the next morning, like the weeds, they just jumped up in your yard, and and they're back. Like, man, where did that come from? I just cut the grass. Why do they keep coming back? Because you just cut the head off. You didn't get the root. Beloved, your heart is the root. It don't matter all that you can have, every kind of web filter, you can have every kind of accountability partner, you can have all the the extras that keep you out of sin, but until your heart gets right, that sin will always pop up and show its head in your life. 
If there's no root, there will be no fruit. Jesus calls us to deal decisively with sin, and it's not because he's a buzzkill. No, Jesus is trying to take the fun out of life. You know, Jesus calls you and I to deal decisively with our sin because of the fruit sin brings. The lust that leads to sin also leads to hell. You see in the text, it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. It is better to lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Jesus is not trying to take all your fun away. Jesus is trying to save your life. Jesus is trying to save your soul. Ask yourself, is the reason why you, 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 you don't deal with your sin, is it really worth it? Is, is your temporary satisfaction, your temporary fulfillment really worth an eternity separated from the goodness of God? Is a momentary pleasure really worth dishonoring the creator and sustainer of the universe? What sin needs to be eliminated from your life that you may pursue righteousness? What are you watching? What are you touching? What are you tasting? Jesus wants to release his kingdom power into our lives, but we can't receive it if we don't get room. See, but here's the deal. We got a lot to deal with. I don't know about you. I got a lot to deal with. And it could be discouraging to think that we got to deal with all of that on our own. So how, how do we deal? How do we break free from sin that so easily entangles us? Beloved, we look to the law. Not to obey the law, but we look to the word of God to actually show us what our sin really looks like. A lot of times we avoid going to the doctor. We know something's wrong, but we avoid going to the doctor because we just don't want to be told the truth. The same goes with sin in our lives. We know we got sin in our lives, but we don't want to go to Scripture to show that we really just got a really bad attitude. We really don't want the Scripture to tell us that we're suffering from a root of bitterness that we really need to let go. We don't want to go to the Scriptures because the Scripture may tell us you really need to forsake that boyfriend, that girlfriend, and your whole crew in order to be holy and acceptable. But if we're ever going to be holy, if we're ever going to break free from sin, we have to look into the law. We have to look into the Word of God and let Him undress us so that we see ourselves for who we are and desperately run to Him for forgiveness. That's the second thing we need to do. We need to look to Jesus. We look to Jesus because of the grace that comes through him. See, Titus 2, and I love the text, always reminds us, for the grace of God has appeared, Jesus Christ, bringing salvation for all people, and this grace does something. It training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. We need grace. We need grace. And not this, this, this fictitious grace that we, that we like to talk about. You just need grace. We need grace. God's power to believe in the gospel. 
that I am a sinner in need of salvation and that Jesus is the one who cleanses me. We need power to obey the gospel, that I need to lay down my life. I need to be crucified daily that Jesus may live in me. But we need grace, the power of his forgiveness that he has given through Jesus Christ. We need grace in order to obey, in order to believe, to know that we are forgiven. The grace of God has appeared in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So we, we look to the law, but then we look to Jesus to overcome sin because he has already overcome the world. This is our challenge. This week, begin to truthfully identify the sin you're dealing with, big or small. Secondly, spend time in prayer and cry out for God's grace. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, I encourage you to turn to Jesus. Turn from yourself living how you want, how, how you please, according to your own standards, and turn towards Jesus Christ for, for salvation. So some of us need just to turn to Jesus, but then the rest of us in here, we need to turn back to Jesus. Because it's easy to, to be saved and think you get it all together and to, to begin to, like Peter, look away from Jesus. But as soon as we begin to look away from Jesus, we begin to sink and to drown. And we need to trust in Romans 8.13 that says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you were in the Everglades and a python snatched you up by the ankle and began to wrap himself around you, and began to squeeze you. Every time you breathed out, it would squeeze you harder. Every time you breathed out, it would squeeze you harder. If you ever found yourself in that situation, see, a lot of these hunters, they don't hunt by themselves, but they hunt with the team. Just for that very reason, you may find yourself struggling in the midst of sin, but you need your, you, you need your team to come alongside of you. Namely, we need Jesus Christ to rush in and be our partner as we fight against sin. But we need one another to rush in, to remove the serpent's grip over our lives that we may live. Break free from, from sin by the power of Jesus and with the team of believers that he has given. Breaking free from sin always begins with confession. May we confess our need to Jesus today in order that we may be set free from sin. Father God, thank you for your convicting word. You tell it like it is. But Lord, you not only call us to a standard to live by, but you have already met that standard for us. For that, we are eternally grateful. And that when we look to you through repentance and faith, we can be saved and assured that as we go through this life, 
though there may be struggles, you have already overcome this, overcome this world and that we are overcomers in Christ Jesus. For you have not given us a situation that is too heavy, but you always make a way of escape by your grace. So, Father, may you move upon our hearts, reveal to us our need and our next steps, that we will live for your glory and for your honor and for your name's sake. In the precious name of Jesus, we do pray. Amen.